Father, it is our privilege to participate in what you are doing in this community and in the world by making your word and your truth go forth. Father, thank you for the privilege. And Father, thank you for the examples of people who are laying down their lives to go. Father, we hold before you now, Anna and Kara, and we ask, Lord, a number of things for them. We ask for your protection. We ask that you would protect them as they go. Guard them, surround them, be with them. Father, I pray for provision as they go, for financial provision. I pray for spiritual provision, for wisdom as they interact with the orphans and the tias and the staff. Father, I pray for wisdom as they walk among a different culture and a different people with different language. Father, I pray that you would give them power by your spirit. Fill them with your spirit, Lord, that they can proclaim your word, your gospel daily amongst the little ones, amongst the tias, by their life and by their doctrine. Father, give them good success as they go. Father, Anna has prepared messages that you have given to her. I pray you would let those messages fall on hearts and bring life. I pray, Father, that this would be a transforming experience for both of them. That they would say that they saw Christ walk with them and touch lives and change lives. And it was their joy to go out in his name. Father, protect them, surround them, bless them, and may they know your comfort and your peace with every step. And Father, now I transition and pray for us today as we listen to your word. Father, you know that this topic, the topic in your word of divorce, is not an easy one. Each of us have experienced pain as we have sat with people or listened to stories where lives have been affected, hearts have been broken. So, Father, I ask that you would give us grace. I pray that you would protect us, that none would be under any sense of condemnation, for there is forgiveness in Christ. Lord, open your word to us, and as followers, help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Over the recent weeks, we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark as a church and have observed that Mark is answering at least two major questions. The first is, who is Christ? And the second is, what does it mean to live as his disciple? 
Who is Christ and what does it mean to live as his disciple? And if you read Mark's words carefully and honestly, I believe that you'll agree with me that Mark, actually God speaking through Mark, brings radical challenge. It is radical. And if you're seeking to live as a disciple, it will rock our world as it rocked their world. So please read along as I read Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Tough sayings. But as we have walked through Mark, we've seen tough sayings. We've seen things like Jesus say, if anyone would be first, he must be last. If anyone would be great, then he must be humble and must be the servant of all. If you want to save your life, then you have to lose it for his sake. If you want to truly be free, then you must become a slave of righteousness. These were radical teachings then. They're radical teachings today. And into this radical teaching comes the topic of divorce and marriage. If you don't think divorce and marriage are hot topics in today's society, and you haven't seen the media, haven't seen the news, they are, And I dare say that few issues have greater impact on our lives than this topic of divorce and marriage. John Piper says that divorce is even more traumatic than losing a spouse or a parent. He says death is clean pain, but divorce is usually dirty pain. And yet most of us, sadly, are familiar with somebody who has walked through the trauma and tragedy of divorce, has watched the effects upon their lives, 
and upon children if they are involved. And so for all the more reason, I think it is critical that we take a look at this scripture as it teaches us on divorce and marriage and to see what Jesus has to say. Now, before you're tempted to think that these words might not apply to you because you are single and you don't plan to be married or you're married and you don't plan to be divorced or you're single and you don't plan to be married or divorced, let me tell you why I think these words apply to everybody in the room for at least six reasons. Firstly, these words were taught to a crowd of women and children and singles and marrieds and non-marrieds and Christians and non-Christians. So I think it applies to all of us in the room. Secondly, the text shows how that scripture can expose the sinful motives of our hearts. So if you've ever had a sinful motive in your heart, I think these words are here to help you. Thirdly, these words speak to how scripture and primarily scripture and not culture and tradition should be the dictates of how we think about divorce and about marriage. We live in a culture. We live in a society where there is immense pressure to conform to the ways that society thinks about these topics. And if we are not careful, we will fall into that mold. It's in the air that we breathe. And as we embrace the teaching that Jesus brings, it does shock us in a sense of radicalness. I found as I was studying for this, there were times I had to think, well, I have compromised in some areas of my thinking. Thank you, Lord. Fourthly, if one day you plan to be married, and I know a number of you single guys that I've talked to, I know what's on your hearts, then there is teaching for you here that will help you as you think about marriage. Fifthly, one day, and perhaps soon, unfortunately, you may come across somebody who is walking through this situation, and I believe there's words here to help them. But finally, number six, the reason why this applies to everybody in the room is that it reinforces the undeniable, radical call to servanthood, especially as it relates to marriage and divorce. So I believe that there is reason for all of us to be listening to this today. And so what I would like to do is I would like to take some time to walk through the scriptures, 1 through 10, 1 through 12, and then discuss some takeaway points from there. So, if I could have you look down at your Bibles, verse 1. It says that he went into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. That's simple, but it's significant. I think it's interesting that this is the ministry area of John the Baptist, who had taught people about the Christ. It's also the area where John was martyred because he spoke out against the sinful divorces of the governing leader, Herod Antipas, and his wife Herodias. So we could say that Jesus was walking among friendlies, but in hostile territory. Now, into this territory come the Pharisees, and they come to test him. They didn't come to learn. It's clear they came to challenge him. Their heart was not submitted to follow, and they ask him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus responds. He takes them to the scripture. 
They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They were referring, of course, to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Moses instructed a man in Deuteronomy 24.1 to write her a bill of divorce and to give it to her. In a sense, give her her walking papers. Surprisingly, in those days, divorce was easy and it was common, unfortunately. The rabbinical teaching of the day was mixed on the issue and there was basically two camps. One camp was more conservative, the other camp was more liberal Followers of Rabbi Shammai, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, which was more conservative, taught that in order to divorce your wife, the woman must have committed something morally shameful or have some moral fault. The view of committing adultery or another violation of the law was thought to be the compelling reason to grant the divorce. That's the conservative view. The more liberal view, Rabbi Hillel, which is a much more common view, argued that a husband could divorce his wife for anything that caused annoyance. A husband could divorce for anything disapproving. One rabbinical teaching, true, stated that the husband could even divorce his wife if she burnt his dinner. Suffice it to say, there was confusion in rabbinical teaching of that day and They weren't interested in teaching the scriptures or the purpose of God for marriage. Traditional teaching on divorce and marriage was about personal gain based upon human imagination. Human gain and personal imagination. Does that sound familiar? How relevant these verses are for our day to day. So the setting is Jesus teaching and up to him come the Pharisees to test him, coming to test him. Then verses five through nine. I love Jesus's response. I think they're both radical, but it's brilliant. He says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. Jesus begins to expose the veneer and the callousness on their hearts, covering the mold and sinful infection of their thinking. On this subject, he shows that God's thoughts about divorce are radically different than just writing a bill of divorce. It was God, he says, that designed marriage. It was God that joined people together. The purpose from the beginning was that husband and wife would come together until death separated them. They were no longer to live as two, but as one flesh. The joining that Jesus is talking about is a covenantal joining. A covenantal joining between the two, but also God joining them. Jesus makes it clear that it was God who brought them together. God who designed marriage. God who was interested in making that happen. Therefore, it's not simply man's choice. God's involved. Now, it's amazing and interesting that God uses this to illustrate one of the greatest themes of the scripture 
is that his redemptive work. And we'll see how he does that. But early in Scripture, Genesis chapter 2, he already starts the truth of this redemptive story. Um, In Genesis 24, he talks about Abraham sending out for a wife. The story of God sending his son to get a bride. That's throughout redemptive history. It's amazing that God, all through Scripture, talks about the redemptive story and he uses marriage to describe that. So the purpose of marriage from the beginning is literally connected to our demonstrating God's story of redemption. Of course, this flew in the face of religious tradition of the day and the custom of the day, not to mention the Roman culture of the day. And I dare say it flies into the face of our culture today. Finally, verses 12, 10 through 12, at some point later, Jesus was alone with his disciples. The crowds were gone, and they asked him privately about this topic. And he reaffirms the radicalness of his teaching. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband, she commits adultery. This is hard-hitting. It's a hard-hitting truth. But lest we miss the grace of Christ... Another point here to bring out. According to rabbinical and Jewish teaching of the day, a woman could commit adultery against her husband. A man could commit adultery against another man by being involved with his wife. But a man could not commit adultery against his wife. Somehow he got a pass. And yet Jesus graciously, marvelously, elevates the status and dignity of women by saying, if he commits adultery, it's against his wife. Just shows the kindness of Christ and his desire to redeem all mankind, the redemptive love. So, let's transition. What are some takeaway points from this? The first that I want to say is that if you are affected by the sin of of divorce personally and you know the pain and suffering of that no one knows that pain and suffering or cares more than Jesus himself and if you have walked through divorce there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ as any sin is forgiven so that too let there be no condemnation here If you've placed your faith in Christ, you are forgiven. If you are here and you are unsure about your faith in Christ, or you are wondering where you stand, I'd like to invite you to consider that he is a shepherd who is willing to show his love for you, who invites you to come and experience his love and his forgiveness. But you must, as a disciple, place your faith in him. So first of all, I do want us to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Secondly, as disciples, we're called to follow Jesus in terms of his view of divorce. For the Christian, tradition 
and culture are not to be the dictates of how we look at things. Though we breathe that in the air around us, we must be careful to resist that. We live in a day and age where there are a hundred different understandings of what marriage means and a thousand different reasons of why divorce is okay. And yet we live in a place where there are broken lives, not to mention testimony of Christ being broken. We are called as disciples to follow his complete teaching on the subject. So a couple other verses I'd like us to look at other parts of scripture. And you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to walk us through that. Luke 18, excuse me, 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Matthew 19:9. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. 1 Corinthians 7:10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. 1 Corinthians 7:15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In summary, except in cases of sexual immorality or desertion of an unbelieving spouse, I believe it is prohibited by God's word and not the design of his purpose for marriage that there be divorce. But I think, personally, what summarizes it best for me is uh, Malachi 2.13, which states, God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Please note in that scripture, it does not say God hates those who have been divorced. God hates divorce. I believe he sees what is broken in the process of divorce. And for that reason, he hates it because he desires so much to display his love, his care, his redemptive power to people. And he can. Now, as we talk about this in different verses, I know that there's a myriad of questions that come. There's a lot of what ifs. We don't have time here to go through all the what ifs. I will say that each case is unique and each case takes time and needs to be thoughtfully considered. There's no cookie cutter case for this. We can't be nonchalant and just um, callously assign a judgment on things. Having said that, we need to hold that intention with what Scripture says about the teaching on divorce. So, as followers of Christ, we're obligated to see what he has to say, to follow what he has to say on that. Thirdly, as disciples, we're called to follow Jesus' view of marriage. Jesus, in these verses, takes us back to the original plan for marriage. He quotes Genesis chapter 2. God says that a man should hold fast to his wife and the two should become one flesh. 
It's amazing to me that as you enter into marriage, God joins man and wife together. I remember a few days before I got married, and I remember it like today because it shook me to my bones. I was standing in a store buying a gift for my wife, telling the cashier all about my upcoming marriage, wedding to come. And she said something that stopped me in my tracks. And I think the Lord allowed to shake me. And she said, wow, what a chance you're taking. I hope it works out for you. And I thought to myself, I've never done this before. I don't know if I know what I'm doing. Uh, And I remember, Stan, I could take you to the place today, nervous. God, what am I doing? In some ways, that's a healthy question. But I remember the Spirit of God stopping me at that moment and saying to me, because I was desperate, Son, is this a chance you're taking? Or is it a choice that you're making where you're making a covenantal promise? And I said, as far as I can tell, I'm doing the latter. I'm making a choice. I'm making a promise. And he said, I am with you in this promise. And you will have all of my power available at your resource. To which I was instantly not nervous. I was rejoicing at that point, which is a good thing when you're heading into marriage. But I remember the Lord saying, I am with you. It's a choice you're making. When we enter into marriage, God covenants with us. I think it's important to remember when you enter into a marriage, it's not two. It's three. God is with us. God is there. And he has a purpose. As disciples, we're called to follow this. God joins male and female together in marriage. That's not about just the sexual union. So, too, it is that. But it's about a covenantal promise. A covenantal promise is a binding promise. It's a binding promise. Marriage is about the covenantal promise. Why? Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, Because it's to mirror the covenantal promise that God makes with his people. How amazing that God covenants with us, promises, I will give you my name, I will never forsake you. Just to recall for a moment the glorious news of the gospel as it speaks about marriage. Christ left heaven, walked this earth, gave his life by hanging on a cross so that he could redeem a bride that he loves. One he loves and one who had turned her back on him, one who had committed adultery against him, one who sinned against him. And with his blood, He purchased beautiful wedding garments to adorn her, to cover her shame, and give those to her in exchange for our ragged, tattered, sinful clothes. And he offers that freely 
to all who will yield their lives to him. And he promises to hold us in his hands, never to forsake. God doesn't divorce because we mess up. God's word and God's promise are that you are mine. I will cover your shame. I won't divorce. How amazing is that? When you wake up in the morning and you realize, I have messed up, guess what? God's covenantal promise is still for you. God has called us into this covenant. He has made it happen. He's the one who's drawn us into this. He's the one who will hold us. He's holding us. He's keeping us. How amazing is that? And marriage is called to be a demonstration of that. And for that reason, divorce is so tragic and that it breaks that testimony. We must, as disciples, embrace Jesus' view of marriage we must remember that he covenants with us. Lastly, as disciples, we're called to follow Jesus' example of submission and surrender to God. I mentioned that Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem, which means he's on his way to the cross. He will soon embrace and face the cross, and he knows that. He knows his days are numbered. Yet, Jesus has set his face like a flint, the scripture says, to embrace the cross. For the Christian, there is a calling. There's a calling and there is a cost of discipleship. As we've been walking through Mark, we've seen how Jesus calls us to that and he commands his disciples, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. Picking up a cross speaks of an outcome. I was talking to a friend who lives in Virginia Beach, who loves to evangelize, finds new ways to do it. He was telling me about how he goes out on the streets, and what he does is he takes a cross, and he walks on the street. And as you can imagine, he attracts attention. And as the attention comes, he begins to share about the gospel. The cross and picking up the cross, as Jesus refers, is not what my friend is doing, though I admire his tactic. In the days of Jesus, if you saw somebody carrying a cross, there was only one inevitable outcome. It meant execution. Friends, as we embrace the cost of discipleship and the call of discipleship, As we embrace the call to follow Jesus and pick up our cross, it means we must surrender to his will. Most of us will not die of execution, but all of us are called to surrender to his will, to watch what he will do, to watch how he will change us, to watch how he will use us. And in no more significant place is surrendering your life important than in the area of marriage because marriage is all about surrender and serving just like it is with the Lord 
The topic of marriage and divorce is just but one more place in the Gospel of Mark, I believe, where the Lord addresses us on what it means to follow Jesus and what role he's going to play in our lives. Marriage will uniquely test our resolve to follow Christ, but it also will refine our commitment to him. As I was preparing, I felt that there are some here today who need to be encouraged regarding your marriage, that God is able to make streams flow even in the desert, that is related to your marriage, he can water and sustain you even in the most parched and weary places. As his child, he has covenanted with you to care for you, to care for your marriage. I'd like to say regardless of how good or how bad the condition of your marriage or your life for that matter, I believe that as you embrace his covenant truth, you will find experience, new strength, new life, and purpose. I believe you'll find that beyond your wildest imagination, there is a purpose for your marriage. Just like there's a purpose for your life. Also, however, without question, following Jesus will require suffering. It will require costs. It will involve disappointment. It will require endurance. But as you trust him, as you follow him, as you embrace him, as you look to him, I believe it will yield a fulfillment and a reward and a joy unspeakable, as Peter says. And one day, one day, an unimaginable reward that we can't even imagine. When one day we stand with him face to face and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. In conclusion, I want to read a story of a true story of two dear friends who I had the privilege and have the privilege of knowing have changed their names. David and Mary came to our church around 1990 as a result of a friend's invitation. Neither were Christians. Mary had received an invitation to come from her boss. David was reluctant. In fact, he was planning to leave his marriage and his family for good after the service that day. They fought about everything and later told me that they fought on the way to church and fought about getting to church that day. David was a successful, decorated Navy diver and Maria, a dental assistant. They had two young children and what seemed to be the American dream but they were miserable. What was worse, both of them had grounds for divorce. Both had sinned against each other in adultery. Their marriage was beyond falling apart. 
They came to church that day. The message was about fathers and spoke about the love of our heavenly father, that God loved us in spite of our sins. David heard that God could forgive him if he put his faith in Christ. He received God's word that day and believed that God did forgive him. God changed both of their hearts that day. And I remember looking over at David and Mary, both of them weeping as babies. I don't know if you're around Navy divers much. They don't cry. David was weeping. The tears, of course, were tears of joy, sensing for the first time God's forgiveness for sin. Though they had determined to end their marriage, God had determined to transform it. The years that followed, they attended my community group, and I watched as God began to put back together their lives and their marriage piece by piece. Lives which were on their way to being destroyed. The process was not instant, nor without much trial and tears. But God was at work transforming their hearts towards each other, towards their children. It required retooling, coming to understand first the gospel, but then the purpose for their marriage and the call and cost of following Jesus. Last year, David contacted me. I was excited to hear from him. He actually contacted me because he was asking about missions. He went on to tell me that he and Mary were doing well and that they did no longer have just two children. They now had five. They had, with their own two children, adopted two children from Africa and also adopted a U.S. child in the U.S. I was stunned. I was driving, as he called, and I nearly had to pull over because I couldn't see because I had tears in my eyes because I thought a life that was looking was originally going to be destroyed now became a haven for orphans as God put their lives back together. We have a God who can do the impossible. We have a God who can redeem. There is hope. He covenants with us regarding divorce and marriage. We must, as all things, present those into his hands and think his thoughts. Let's pray together. Father, you know that in preparing for this My desire is that your words strengthen our hearts to follow you. I pray, Father, for people who are struggling in any area of which I spoke. I pray, Father, that they might come to see your power, your strength, your purposes will prevail as we surrender and follow you and abide in you. Father, I pray for any marriages where there is question related to divorce. I pray, Father, that your spirit would bring hope 
would bring encouragement, would bring strength. Father, our desire is to glorify you. Our desire is to hear your name lifted up. So I pray, Father, that in our marriages, help them to reflect the truth of your redemptive story. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.